thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Meet the hype man of hyperbarics, Joseph Dettori. Joe parlayed his career as a Navy diver into a research obsession after designing submersibles for the military. Engineering the necessary hyperbarics for our nation's elite was just the beginning of discovering the incredible health benefits of utilizing this kind of treatment for wellness. It's amazing what our bodies are capable of doing under the appropriate amount of pressure. Here it is, episode 488. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can dive into some of Joe's research by following him on Instagram at Dr. Deep Sea. Until next time, bye! Hey Joe, thanks for coming on Power Athlete Radio. Hey man, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always good to see you. Yeah. Um, for the people that don't know you, can you introduce yourself and give us a little background, a little uh, macro 10,000 foot view, and more oh importantly, give us a little preview of what we're going to discuss today with hyperbarics? Yeah, sure. So uh, so my name's Joe Dottori. I uh, did 28 years in the Navy. I decided that I wouldn't, wouldn't do that anymore and want to do something <laughs> totally different. So uh, when I quit that, I... Went back to school and got a PhD in biomedical engineering, and now I just do clinical research. But what we're going to talk about today is the stuff that's going on inside the human body when hyperbarics is in play. So, how'd, how'd you get into hyperbarics? I well, mean, obviously, as a Navy diver, yeah, you know, I exactly. Mean, but but what was the carryover? I mean, you you know, uh, you know, biology, and now all of a sudden you're in this piece and doing clinical research on the hyperbarics. Yeah, so people are like, hey, you're all over the place. I'm like, oh, I'm all over the place in life support, right? So my, my undergrad was in um, computer engineering, whatever. So it was like, I'm an engineer by, by thought process, right? And then I go to school for a master's in astronautical engineering, but it was all in life support, right? So it's all about designing and building high altitude stuff and the oxygen requirement and the pressure requirement and all that. It's just different. One goes up, one goes down, who cares, right? So, uh, and then I got into, you know, a PhD and they were like, Hey, what do you want to do it in? And I, I signed on with Don Diagostino first to be my, uh, to be my doctor father at first. And then bad things happened at the university and they were like, uh, so you're not going to be able to have any more graduate students there, Dom. (laughs) Was it, did it have to do with his, uh, adult? I don't know. I have no recollection of that fact center. The bottom line was they were like, hey, look, you can't can't sign any more grad students on. So he farmed (laughs) me off to somebody else. And then I wound up, you know, that was good. good. How'd you get down to Tampa? So uh, SOCOM is down there, Special Operations Command. And when I finished uh, command at Deep Submergence Unit, I uh, got called over to SOCOM. And they were like, hey, we want you to build dry combat submersible. I was like, all right, great. I don't even know how to spell that, but sure. So... uh, they dragged me down there and then they were like, hey, you're going to spend four years here or three and a half. Uh, so I said, great. My daughter's going to finish high school in one spot. This is my eldest. Uh, going to finish high school in the same spot. And then they're like, oh, by the way, you've now made it. You're going to be the guy. We're going to send you to Washington, D.C. I said, well, that's great. But like two years from now, right? And they're like, no, 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 no. We need you in D.C. now. And I'm like, but y'all told my daughter that she could finish high school in one spot. And they're like, with 27 years in the Navy at that point, they said, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. You just fly up to Washington, D.C., and then come back on the weekends, do Geographical Bachelor. I'm like, what the actual F are you talking about? I said, that's not the way you treat people. And they're like, well, but we really need you. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't need you. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, boom, yeah. punched out. So, nice. Yeah, so I ended up in Tampa. I stayed in Tampa and then just, just hung. I mean, it was a great place, great international airport. I can travel wherever I need to and do whatever I want to do there. When, when did you get to Tampa? 2009. 2009? Yeah. Yeah, I moved there in 1999, and I lived there through 05. I loved oh, wow. it there. Oh, yeah. I totally like it. I, I think it was a great place. 
Great place for the kids to grow up. Nice. It's warm. It's it's, it's actually not overly ridiculous, except for, as you know, July and August. But sure. yeah, good stuff. No, I, I always like Tampa. Um, not only was it, it was, uh, <clears throat> I don't even view Miami as part of Florida. It's more like uh, just North Cuba. <laughs> like it, it, It's like a Latin country in its own. <laughs> and then, you know, when you go to Jacksonville and kind of that, like the Redneck Riviera and all like the hillbilly stuff is up there. And uh, Tampa was this interesting alcove. Where it had some culture, it had some Cuban stuff, but it wasn't too bad, and it was There's just a, still some rednecks. Oh yeah, no, there's well, you can't oh, go anywhere. Different and, kind of white trash in Florida <laughs> than yeah than we're used to here in Texas. You don't have to go very far to find a redneck no. either. It's like ah, that's not bad at all. No, <laughs> it's like oh, it's a couple miles outside the city. But yeah, you're right. It's eclectic. It's all over the place. You got all that Cuban culture. You got a lot of Italian culture down there, which for me was great. I mean, I grew. I'm an Italian, so. You know, my old man was happy about it, you know, happy about me moving here because he had the sons of Italy that were right down in Ebor. And I'm like, really? Like, oh, yeah, don't you know? I'm like, no, Dad, I have no clue. <laughs> yeah, none of, no, none of your old world Italian clubs to, to belong to. Yeah, no. And plus, I walk in, they're like, who the hell are you with the blonde hair and the blue eyes? You're not Italian. I'm like, oh, no, 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 trust me. <laughs> So uh, you go down there and, and you're doing clinical research yep. uh, for the Navy. You pull the ripcord and then what? Oh, hmm. So once I pulled the ripcord, I, uh, I decided that I wanted to do something completely and utterly different, right? So, so here I am. I'm at SOCOM. I built dry combat submersible, or I, I started. Well, it, uh, take a step back. What's yeah. a dry combat submersible? Ah, so uh, it's an underwater vehicle. And an underwater vehicle that uh, basically, if you have something that's shaped like a submarine-ish, but half of it is pressurized and the other half is not pressurized. So the cats that are in the front are driving and they are not pressurized Oh, at these all. are the sealed delivery vehicles. They are, but they're pressurized in the back and you can open the door and the cats can just like, Kirk can get out and mm -hmm. go swim and go be, bite the heads off snakes, whatever it is that they're going to do, you know, and then come back and then be dry for the entire transit back. Oh. Yeah, so they're a lot warmer, but it's there's a lot that goes with that because you open the door on a submarine and water comes in. I mean, bad things happen, right? So you gotta keep it pressurized. It's a lot, lots of life support system stuff, right? So here I am just designing life support system stuff. And, and I mean, so, you know, they say that the genesis of everything was on the back of a cocktail napkin, but the, no joke. We were sitting in a bar in Riviera Beach. It was me, two SEALs, and a, uh, an engineer, a civilian engineer from SOCOM. And we're sitting there literally drawing this program of record out on the back of a napkin. And I wish to God I kept that because then I came back and they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, here's $22 million. Go build it. And I was like, boss, I need more money. He's like, commander, which part of go build dry combat submersible don't you get? And I'm like, uh -uh. Yes, sir. And that was McRaven. He's like, go, go do it. And I'm like, yes, sir. Nice. So you started building this and? So I started building that and then they wanted me to go up to DC and be a program manager up in Washington, DC for the same type stuff, only for a bigger program up there. And I was like, okay, great. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll do that in two more years. And then, you know, turns out that uh, they had other plans. They wanted me up there early. I said, you know what? I'm going to punch. And I had 27 plus years at that point. Time to get out. So uh, when I retired, I was like, okay, what do I want to do now? And of course, governmental contracting always comes into play. Everybody's like, oh, you know, you can sit in the same chair and do the same exact thing as you want to do right now for like six figures. And I'm like, oh, forget it. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, so I said, I, I want to do something totally different. So I didn't know what to do. 
So I, I got in touch with a friend of mine, an MD named Harry Whalen, and uh, Harry was a Navy diver as well, a diving medical officer, and we start shooting the breeze, and he's like, hey, why don't you work with me, and you can be my tester for some research that I'm doing. Okay, no problem. So we started doing the ketogenic diet testing mm-hmm. as it relates to oxygen toxicity in divers. Mm-hmm. Now, we've been using the ketogenic diet for years and years and years to control epileptic seizures. Yep. So it's like, well, this is pretty straightforward. It should probably control central nervous system oxygen toxicity seizures. So we start doing research and then I go to publish a paper and the Undersea Hyperic Medical Society is like looking at me like I got 10 heads and they're like, you really shouldn't be publishing. You don't have any letters after your name. I'm like, well, like it's hard. And they're like, oh yeah, it's really hard to get a PhD or an MD. And I'm like, well, okay, here, hold my beer. I'll, I'll be right back. Five years later, I come back and I got a PhD and they're like, shit. <laughs> now we actually have to listen to him. I'm like, oh, well, you asked for it. Now I got it. <laughs> so what did the clinical research say? I mean, did it support your theory? Oh, no. I mean, the stuff that I, you know, once you, once you start down this road, it just open up, opens up the door to anything. But the bottom line with that, um, Dom D'Agostino tested rats. He went to five atmospheres, uh, which is 132 feet of seawater on Pure O2. No seizures in rats. So it's like, hmm. And we had been doing human testing. And the problem is the Committee for the Protection of Human Subjects says you can't go and do this without proving that first. So we we only got to 1.6 PO2, which is all we were allowed to go to. So once you get to 1.6, you're like, eh, that's all we can prove. And we're still collecting data on that eight years later because we don't have enough retroactive data to prove our case to move forward in human testing. So mm-hmm. we're still at 1.6, which I suspect we're going to be at for a long time. And I mean, several thousand people is what they're looking for, you know. Wow. So uh, would you say for the layman that a ketogenic diet is beneficial for reducing those seizures? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. We, we know that it works for sure for epileptic seizures. Now, if we consider the same mechanism of action, which we just simply don't know, we don't know what the mechanism of action for central nervous system oxygen toxicity seizures are, or epileptic seizures for that matter. It's not a specific thing that we can go, oh, if we just turn that off, that peptide, boom, that's it. No, it's not the way it works, you know, so... But yeah, it, it actually does work. I've, uh, I've been in situations at 2.0 and higher when I was on this series of dives uh, that untested, you know, it's only an N of one and, you know, it's very small cell, but yeah, it works. <laughs> I mean, the anecdotal evidence sure says it works. So what's the mechanism for that? Yeah. No, once again, I'm, I mean, but like, what's the environment that, that would cause that? Oh, the high partial pressure of oxygen? Yeah. So that particular one, I was doing a dive on the HMHS Britannic, uh, which is in 400 feet of seawater off the coast of Greece. Sister ship of the Titanic, incidentally, couldn't sink. And they said, well, why did this one sink if the Titanic sank? And you know why? Because the bulkheads weren't high enough, right? You saw the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. And uh, so as the bulkheads were sealed over the top in the next models of ships, the Olympic and the Britannic, they sealed the bulkheads all the way up to the ceiling. Well, it turned out that this ship was running in a mine infested waterway with the open doors between the fire room and the engine room. And Mm -hmm. as soon as she hit a mine, the whole water filled the fire room wow. and the engine room of the entire ship, and she sank in minutes. Wow. Yeah. So. Did, did they teach you these failed crafts in school, or did you just have an interest and you found out why all these other watercraft failed? Oh, no. I just I, I took a morbid interest, morbid curiosity of like, hey, oh, oh why do ships sink? That's kind of cool. Because I was a diver and salvage guy, you know, so we sure. did all that kind of salvage work. Dude, and, the, uh, I remember, um, you know, I went through all the PADI certifications and all that, yeah. and I dove, you know, for years, I mean, geez, since I was like 15 years old, so 30 plus years. And I remember uh, the first time I saw the Navy tables. Yeah. 
I like my head exploded. <laughs> so like I, I was, so like when they write like the tables basically on like, you know, how long you have to dive and where you have to stay. And like, there's all these, you know, how deep you can go, how long you can stay under a certain for seals or just straight no, up? for, for, uh, recreational divers. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, they always talk about the bends and you know, if you don't do this, you're going to get bends bent. is my biggest fear in life. That's why I'll never scuba. Uh, so, and then I see the Navy tables and I realize like, even if you were to be like mess it up to the point of like seven times, it doesn't equate to what the Navy tables were even close. Like I realized like, Oh shit. Like the, like it just blew my mind. So a little bit of padding in there. Yeah. 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 There's a ton of padding that they gave like, Hey, you know, you can only go to a hundred and you could stay down there for eight minutes. And these dudes are like, I'm at 400 for an hour, you know, yeah. kind of a thing where you're like, what? Wait a minute. Yeah. So the Navy dive tables are predicated upon an 18 to 24 year old male in superior physical condition. So, I mean, you guys are in great shape, but I don't even think you're 18 to 24, are you? Oh no, but I turn 35 tomorrow. Yeah. So here, you know, here we are trying to dive on those Navy tables, which are made by those kids, kids, sure, literally, sure, sure. and they're in great shape. And it's like, well, why do, why do we beat the Navy divers? Why do we work those Navy divers out so hard? And it turns out it's nitri uh, nitric oxide synthate, which is a smooth muscle mediator. So that's brought on by high intensity cardiovascular work, which is why we beat these kids up. But we never even knew why. We just worked them out really hard. Yeah, because that's what you do. You beat right. the shit out of them. Because they beat the last guys up because they beat me up. Because it was like, oh, okay, yeah, great. I'm in so great there's a direct correlation between uh, your physical capacity, you know, aerobic and anaerobic yep. capacity and your ability to stay underwater for extended periods of time. Yeah. For, so with respect to this, it has to do a lot with the bubbles, uh, with decompression sickness. So yeah, it actually has a lot to do with that. It's, it's really interesting and neat to be honest with you. The more I learn about it, the more I'm like, ah, oh, that makes total sense. That's why we did things that way. We never knew, but <laughs> well, like, I'm, I'm glad that, that somebody was smart on the front know? side. Well, they I, just did. I don't know that they did know, but <laughs> we started working people out and then we found this correlation to this smooth muscle mediator and we said, oh, yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I'm confabulation. <laughs> well, I mean, and, uh, you know, the distinction between striated muscle and smooth muscle, Yeah, you know, is a big one. I mean, when we go and lift weights, we're talking about uh, striated muscle, smooth muscle would be like our eyeballs yeah. and like organs and stuff like that. Yeah. Those uh, in, inside your veins and arteries to vasoconstrict and vasodilate, I mean, that, the inside of the endothelium lining, that's all smooth muscle. And if you can get that to vasoconstrict, vasodilate, and even in this case, if you form nitric oxide synthate on the inside of that endothelium lining, it prevents the bubbles from coalescing on the inside of the endothelium lining. And like, we think we know what causes DCS and we really don't. So people will tell you, oh, it's all about, it's all about the bubbles. Well, kind of, sort of, maybe not really. But the more you ask like a researcher about it that knows decompression sickness, they go, I'm really not sure what causes decompression sickness. I think it has something to do with bubbles. So, Well, uh, you brought up an interesting point about um, developing elasticity within the walls of the veins and the arteries. Yeah. Which is the same byproduct that uh, Dr. Sato from Katsu, who invented the blood flow restriction training, mm -hmm. that he observed that all of a sudden... Uh, when they started using blood flow restriction training, they noticed that there was greater plasticity within the walls of the arteries and the veins, and that people that had, what is it, arteriosclerosis, I know I messed that word up, 
where the, the you have a hardening of the walls yeah. that they could actually fix and repair this in people using f blood flow restriction training. Right. So this is aging, right? Yeah. This is exactly what yeah. happens when you age. It's like, oh, you, this is why when, when old people stand up, they get that syncope, right? They get that, that pass out thing, you know, it's, it's smooth muscle mediation in the, in the thigh or the, uh, you know, the arteries in the leg and they go, oh yeah, all the blood goes to the leg. Oops. <laughs> Boop. Lights so, out. So if we were to, to, you know, start drawing some parallels, you could say that, you know, age, youth, physical fitness, all these things allow you to, uh, I guess you could say, go through like a stronger or a greater load. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And, and the better you keep you and see people are looking for that magic pill, right? There's no magic pill that you can take that's going to keep you young. But if you work out, if you do this, if you do that, if you eat right, if you're healthy, if you lead a healthy lifestyle, if you, you know, not sedentary, and if you do hyperbarics, yeah, sure, that'll keep you young. But it's not one of those things that's going to no, do it No, it's a cumulative right? effect. Exactly. Well, so. it, uh, it, it's like, uh, you know, we run into people, um, you know, we get hundreds of emails a day and a big one is, oh, you know, I let myself get out of shape. How do I get back? And, uh, you know, especially on the diet and nutrition thing, um, my comment to them is it's never just one food. Yeah. If you were like, hey, it was just that fucking pizza I ate, but everything else was clean, you're usually going to be okay. It's a cumulative effect of a lot of different things. It's sedentary lifestyle, not monitoring your calories, not working out. It's all of these factors. Yeah. So how does the hyperbarics play into it? So hyperbarics is cool uh, because it helps you with a lot of those things. Uh, th there's that smooth muscle media, nitric oxide synthate, that is, is generated as a result of hyperbarics. The other thing that hyperbarics does, which is really cool, is it, it gives you CD30 plus progenitor stem cells, CD34 plus progenitor stem cells, which are these, it, they're like the wild card of all stem cells. Like it's the gold card. What could you use to replace your bad knee tissue? Well, CD34 plus. What could you use? You know, they're like the embryonic stem cells in the cord of the baby, right? They're mm -hmm. like the best kind from you when you were a baby so that they can all be completely uptake, right? So, but, uh, so those are generated when you do hyperbarics to the tune of eight times what they're normally done inside your body. So it's like, oh, wow, I can use this to repair everything. And your bodies are in a constant state of repair, right? It's breakdown, repair, breakdown, repair, breakdown, repair. So it's kind of a, uh, kind of a neat process that you go through when you get into hyperbarics, you open that stuff up. Can, can you explain hyperbarics? I mean, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sure people that yeah, are sure. listening have heard the term hyperbarics and they just probably picture Michael Jackson sleeping in an oxygen <laughs> tube, but like, uh, actually break it down a little bit because, um, you know, we know hyperbarics, uh, hypo, uh, was it hyper and hypo, yeah. you know, barracks, but, yep. uh, Let's discuss it a little bit. Yeah, sure. So first of all, let me get a nickel back on Michael Jackson because you see that thing of him being pushed into the hyperbaric chamber, that picture, and there was a rumor he slept in a hyperbaric chamber. That never actually happened. So what happened was, do you remember the Pepsi commercial? You're old yeah. enough. These yeah, probably yeah not, where they but, set his hair on fire. Right, they set his hair on fire and he got burned. So he went to the burn center in Miami and they took real good care of him. Why? Because he's Michael freaking Jackson. So they took great care of him and then he was like, I'm going to donate a whole bunch of money to the burn unit in Miami. And with that money, they bought a chamber. So when they bought that chamber as a publicity stunt, they just put Michael Jackson on the little thing and they pushed him in there halfway in, halfway out. And they started taking pictures and it was like, whoa, Michael Jackson sleeps in the chamber. Yeah, no, it did not happen. Wasn't a thing. So he never actually did that kind of hyperbarics. Now he slept in a tent and all that other stuff and did whatever he did. I don't know. I'm not going to profess to be a, you know, knowledge of Michael Jackson's home life, but Bottom line being, uh, in hyperbarics, what you do is specifically to hyperbarics, you're going to pressurize. It's hyper 
barracks, too much pressure or more pressure, right? Hypobarics is less pressure. So we're currently at 14.7 pounds per square inch. Let's just call it 15. But if you measured and weighed all the molecules that are in a square inch of space between here and the top of the stratosphere, all those molecules would weigh 15 pounds, give or take. Same thing when you go underwater. When you go underwater, every 33 feet you go underwater, if you weigh a column of water, it's 15 pounds. So it's the same as another atmosphere and another atmosphere. And because of gas laws and pressures and pressure volume temperature relationship, you get to squeeze gas into a smaller space, right? Because it's twice the uh, it's it's twice the volume, but it winds up being twice the pressure. So because your lungs are compliant, they'll open up and you'll get to be able to breathe twice as much gas. So it's like taking in 200% oxygen instead of on the surface breathing 100% oxygen. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah. Uh-huh. So there's a couple of really cool things that come in with that. So once you get to the point where you're breathing 200% oxygen, for instance, normally plasma is transporting your oxygen, right? And I'm sorry, normally hemoglobin is transporting sure. your oxygen. Under hyperbaric conditions, plasma is sufficient to transport oxygen. So as the size goes, hemoglobin's pretty big and plasma's pretty small. So plasma can get everywhere, even in poorly perfused tissue. You have ischemia, you have this, uh, this, this ache, this pinch, something. All of that is hypoxic, right? Which mm-hmm. means it does, hypoxic, doesn't no have enough oxygen, exactly. So what you're looking to do is the hemoglobin can't get through because they're too big because there's a little restriction. Well, plasma can get through anywhere. Plasma can weep everywhere. So, And they did a study in 1956. It was called Life Without Blood. So what they did was they took a whole bunch of pigs. Yet again, we were talking about pig story just a couple minutes ago. They took a whole bunch of pigs. They took them down to three atmospheres, which is effectively 66 feet of seawater, three atmospheres absolute. They pressurized them with 100% oxygen, and then they exsanguinated them. They pulled all the red blood cells out of them replaced it with nothing but like plasma if you will um and then they pigs lived and we used to do open heart surgery in the 50s and 60s at three atmospheres why because you didn't need that load in the hemoglobin you didn't have to load up the oxygen with you know the hemoglobin didn't have to load up oxygen the plasma can transport sufficient amount of oxygen to support cellular respiration Crazy. It's mind blowing. Well, it, uh, but uh, uh, I think you're on the same place I am, which <laughs> is like, what's the evolutionary implications of this? Like, how did this become like like this? Isn't just something we found. Like, there has to be some form of evolutionary implication for why we have this ability, right? Did you ever think about that? Yeah, so uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy has been around for years and years. And when I say years and years, I want to say it's 1664. Um, they, they built what was called a domicilium to pressurize people to treat gastric problems, gastric distress. So they thought, oh, there's gas inside. What we need to do is compress and push that gas in. That'll make you feel better. How did they pressurize something in 1664? Yeah. Steel bolts, rivets. Yeah. Good stuff. (laughs) I mean, you could just imagine, right? Somebody hand, hand pounded this. They created something called a domicilium. Yep. How did Um, they like... I understand that? that they had the fabrication Google. ability, <laughs> like they, they had the fabrication ability <laughs> to build the chamber, but how did they pressurize the chamber? Like, like pressurize for, air. Uh, I know, but I, forcing it in, air. how? Was a yeah. dude blowing in it or did they build a pump? So it, when we did diving back then, we would do a compressor that would just be hand cranked. Mm. So I imagine it was hand cranked. To be honest with you, I wouldn't know. Uh, I think it was yeah. Henshaw was his name, right? 
British physician. Just this particular website I clicked on just says British physician. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, but but we've been doing stuff like that, and I mean, you know, so like in '39 so, they treated leprosy. So they started leprosy. figuring this out in the 1600s, yeah. and we still don't know the mechanism for it today. Oh, God, no, 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 no. That's because nobody pays for this kind of research. It's not sexy anymore. Fuck, I, I think it's sexy. So, well, you and I think it's sexy, but here's the problem: who pays for all the research in the United States? Uh, it's uh, insurance and, 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 insurance. and, and health. Yeah, drug uh, companies, drug companies. Big pharma. Yeah, yep. I mean, it, you they know. can't make any money off oxygen, man. There's no money to be made for them. So why would they support any research on it? They're not going to care if we find the cure for cancer in hyperbarics, and not that it does, but they're not going to care. They don't want that. They want you to be on the pill, on the yep. drug, on the thing. Right. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, pharmacology is, is, is what our normal modern medicine is. Yeah. So, okay. So, well, uh, John, they discovered this type of treatment before the discovery of oxygen. Yeah. So like True story. All, all sorts of questions that nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, this is where my head just pops off. Uh, okay. So, uh, obviously they have the chambers, you're putting somebody in, um, you're, you know, you're pressurizing them. How are they gauging like the different atmospheres? I mean, these guys wouldn't have understood atmospheres and diving. And no, no, no. We understood diving, and we knew what diving was all about, but we didn't have a direct correlation. We just pressurized until. I mean, geez, uh, there was. I mean, until what somebody in- exploded? And they're like, oh, it's too much. No, it's, it, it'd be the opposite way. Oh, you just implode. implode. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, that's right. But uh, I think they actually in the early. 15 or 1400s, uh, one of these guys, I think it's Paul Burt or Lorraine Smith. I can't remember. Uh, which Paul Burt's is the 1800s. Right, 1800s. Okay. So he pressurized a snake. And what he saw was as he's looking at him through the glass, because the glass, the snake was in a glass, and they pressurized that jar. And then as they brought him back up, he visualized in the snake's eyeball a gas bubble. And it was like, huh. I wonder if we get to intake more gas or absorb more gas when you're pressurized. I mean, it's like these guys were like just throwing dice against the wall. They didn't know what they were doing. But back then, all you needed was original thought and you could do something cool. Now, everything's been done. You sure, know, so sure. Like, you know. <laughs> wow. Um, okay, so when you set up the hyperbarics, I mean, obviously it's a chamber. Yep. Um, when you were, well, I mean, I, I guess your familiarity with chambers in terms of uh, having people decompress after long dives. Yep. So what's the kind of the correlation, like what's the, you know, the connection on that? I mean, because you're basically giving them oxygen in the same situation, right? So you'll give them oxygen or higher concentrations of oxygen than normal air, right? Because we're breathing 21, as you guys well know. But when you're decompressing, you're just, it's more about slowly bringing them to the surface. So in the Navy, we would do something called 40 to 40. So we'd bring somebody out of the water at 40 feet. We'd have five minutes to strip all their clothes off and get their hat off, get them inside the chamber, pressurize them back down to 40 feet. But now the guy's in the chamber on the ship. So I can take good care of him. I can keep him warm. If you're in the water, there's nothing I can do in the waves. You're, you're subject to whatever. And if you're off the coast of someplace you're not supposed to be off the coast of, you can't move the ship until the guy comes out of the water. So we did these 40 to 40 excursions. We'd pull people out of the water and then throw them in the recompression chamber and then slowly bring this chamber back to the surface while the ship was transiting, going wherever it had to go. So that was kind of the ideology of the decompression profiling because they were like, look, we got to get out of the water. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Well, they got bad guys chasing them. It's probably like, like they're not <laughs> going to have time yeah, exactly. or, you know, a situation where they can decompress and take the time. Yep. That's exactly it. Did, um, I mean, how did that research carry over into the hyperbarics? 
how did that research carry over into hyperbaric? So, <clears throat> nope. I mean, did you ever look at any of the physiological? Like, I, I imagine those guys in those situations as they were divers, might have had some of the physiological situations that were going on that we see with hyperbarics? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we didn't know what was going on at this point, but there was a lot of anecdotal evidence. And I'll give you a great for instance. I just treated a, a woman who had a, um, uh, she had some sort of radiation injury, uh, and it's really, hyperbarics is really good for radiation injuries, especially in the bowels. So She's in there and she had this patchy paresthesia, this numbness and tingling in her foot. And it was so bad that she couldn't feel her foot and didn't know where it was in space and time. Seven treatments later, she goes, hey, you know, doc, my, my foot's starting to tingle and I haven't felt that foot in probably 15, 20 years. I'm like, really? Hmm, that's weird. So I'm thinking, okay, patchy paresthesia or some sort of a peripheral neuropathy. She's getting the blood flow coming back in. The tingling is what? Reperfusion, right? So it's a reperfusion type of an injury. And I'm like, oh, I bet this is going to happen. This girl is going to heal this peripheral neuropathy in the chamber before she's even done. Sure enough, by 15 treatments, she was like, I can completely feel my foot. And then she did a total of 38, I think. And so here she is getting cured from this other thing while she was trying to cure her gut and the radiation injury that she had. So there was lots of that going on in the early Navy divers, right? It's like, oh, well, these guys don't suffer from this. These guys don't suffer from that. And like I said, people were throwing rocks against the wall because we don't know. We didn't know any of this stuff. And people were just supposing and guessing and hoping and maybes. So it's like, oh, I wonder why. And we still don't know why per se exactly, but we supposing that it is from the hyperbarics and the treatments that they got, the treatments, quote unquote, that they got. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, like, um, take me through the process, right? Yeah. Like, like, take us through the process. Obviously, there's a chamber involved in some mm -hmm. oxygen and some way to pressurize. Yep. So, basically, <laughs> you come into a, a facility and, and you'll, you'll get stripped. And one of the big things is there's two kinds of hyperbarics. There's medium or mild hyperbarics, and then there's hyperbaric oxygen therapy, right? So the two of these, you'll, you'll appear to be almost the same. Only one will only pressurize you to about 1.3 PSI, give or take. And that 1.3 PSI winds up being, you know, whatever, uh, eight feet, nine feet. So that becomes completely ineffective, but, but let me get more on that later. What you'll do is you'll pressurize the tank with either oxygen or air, and it really doesn't matter what you pressurize with. What matters is what you're breathing. So if you were in a tube and the tube that I intend to put here is going to be pressurized with air. Side note, guys. <laughs> Joe's going to show up with a hyperbaric chamber that we're going to park here at Power Athlete to test. Yes. I hear you need a partner. You need you need the buddy system. Yeah, so yeah, you got to have somebody on the outside who can fucking but hey. di dismantle the nuclear weapons and not fall asleep. Okay, go on. Sorry. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're going to break this wide open and do some cool stuff. So so you you need to be surrounded when you're breathing by oxygen. And when I say surrounded, that means you that you need to have an oral nasal mask or a hood. Hoods are a little more comfortable. You're so if I've done hyperbarics where they gave me a mask, but it wasn't strapped on, it was just kind of light on there, that's not the real hyperbarics. Uh, probably not. I'm just assuming that if it's just kind of laid on your nose, I yeah. mean, yeah, no, that probably wasn't, wasn't the real hyperbarics. Yeah, yeah so. Okay. Unfortunately. Um, and the unfortunate thing is people are selling that as the same thing as hyperbarics. And it's not. And, and the only reason it's not, it's not like the laws of physics don't apply 
in the 1.3 chambers as they do in the 2.0 to 3.0 chambers. But the, they're just no body of evidence. And that's how we do things, right? Like we're a scientific uh, race, if you will. So we wind up running down this road going, okay, we think that this might work. So we do a whole bunch of studies on it. We say, oh, okay, if you do these treatments at 2.0 and you do 20 of them, this is how many extra stem cells you can expect to get. Now, if you do treatments at 1.3, are you going to get extra stem cells? I don't know, maybe, but we don't have any studies on that. Mm. But what you can't do is say that you're going to get as many as you get at 2.0 because that's just lying. And you can't say that if you're treated at 3.0, it's the same as being treated at 2.0. So, you know, you, you got to follow rules and that's kind of what we do. It's like I said, not saying that the laws of physics don't apply in those chambers, but sometimes yeah, you just follow the science for real. Well, I mean, uh, how did you guys figure out like the depth at which you do it? <laughs> so oh yeah it, it's freaking hilarious that you guess that, you, that you're on that topic the answer is it is by guess and by golly <laughs> I, I, you, and everybody looks at me like i have 10 heads no, when i, I say I, that i fucking believe it most of uh most medicine is just conjecture like yeah. I, I think let's just start here it's kind of like uh when i was going through all the research for wade's army on um uh on the cancer research with uh, uh what is it um with chemotherapy, yeah. I asked, uh, how do you figure out how much chemo? And they're like, well, we did a test and this is what we saw knocked it out. And I'm like, but what was that person? Have you guys ever figured out like what, like the minimal effective dose? Right. Like, no, we don't have time for that. So what they do is they blast them with such a high dose that it kills everything, right. even the cell healthy cells mm. and then destroys the immune system where the person just dies of just somebody coughs on them. Right. And my whole thing, and there's, and they're using that for kids mm -hmm. without adjusting the dosages that were designed for adults. For yeah, or, or for adults, which is even over the top. Oh. And they never said, hey, you know what? Like, why don't we try this dose and see if it's effective? Why don't we try this dose? And they, like, not try trading up. They just yeah. fucking carpet bomb the entire kid. Yep. And then the problem is their immune system so weak that if it comes back, they're gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So interestingly enough, you mentioned chemotherapy. There's chemo chemotherapeutic synergy that goes with this. That is to say, now I'm just going to use a visual reference because I don't know much about chemo. I just read John Feldmeyer's work, which is epic, right? So what it says is, look. Dude, I love I, dude, I love what a nerd you are. I, I love, <laughs> dude, and not only are you a cool motherfucker, but he's like such a nerd. You're like, oh God, it's read all this chemo. It's so amazing. It's good. I love it. So you normally take a dose of chemo this big, right? So it's like however many inches, whatever. That's your dose of chemo to kill everything in your body. If you get this much chemo, an inch and a half, and you do hyperbarics, you have the same exact effect. Wow. Let me let that sink in for just a second. Why are we, like, less of a thing that kills everything and the same effect seems to be great. Why are we not doing that? Uh, because it doesn't benefit the drug companies. Um, because you know what, like, <laughs> and you see my problem. <laughs> so, uh, you know, part of our deal with Wade's army, uh, you know, we're all about helping the families, but we've gone into this idea of like, Hey, we're going to fund some clinical research. Oh, so wow. to fund some of the clinical research, um, I have to read all these proposals and I got really ticked on one of them because what they were trying to do, one of the drug companies were sponsoring it. They were basically both of their, all, all their trials had, had proven that, um, all the, the, the drugs that they were using weren't working. So this trial was them combining them. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, and, that makes perfect and, sense. And then they are trying to get people into this trial, and they're giving these people this false hope. And I'm like, so you have two drugs that have already been proven over and over again. This is your last, you know, like right. last hurrah to try to get some money out of this thing. And the, the kids they're used for the clinical trials, that was their last ditch effort. Yeah. Everything else, so then you subscribe or apply, 
and they're selling that false hope for you yeah, to enter. And it's uh, and, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, I like uh, the cancer thing is so ugly. I mean, it's like, I, yeah, I, yeah, no, but, it absolutely is. So interesting that you got on the whole thing of how do we design tables and how do we know how deep and how do we know how long? So great story, great epic clinical researcher in Texas, which is where a lot of the stuff was done on the military base because that was the original funding back in the day. There was a colonel that was doing the research and he shall remain unnamed at this point, but you can Google him if you want, you'll find it. And he had a general who was one of his guys that's getting treated, right? So the general is a general, right? You have a lot of stars on your shoulder and you're just a colonel. When I say just a colonel, it's a pretty high rank, but still not higher than a general. He said, all right, general, so here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna come and you're gonna get in the chamber. You're gonna take everything off. You're gonna have to stay in that chamber for an hour and a half. It's gonna take you 10 minutes to descend. It's gonna take you six minutes to ascend. So you're gonna be in the chamber a total of whatever, you know, like almost two hours. And uh, that's the protocol, and you'll do that seven days a week, every day. You'll do that, and da 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 da. And this is the way it's going to go. And he goes, No, 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 Colonel, you don't understand. This is the way it's going to go. The bus rotates every hour and a half. So I am going to be out of the chamber within an hour and a half. Do you understand me, Colonel? <laughs> the Colonel went, Yes, sir. And he goes, Oh, and by the way, I'm only doing this five days a week. So I'll do it Monday through Friday, but I'm not doing it on Saturday and Sunday. And that's that. Do you understand me, Colonel? And that's the way the friggin' table was written because that's the way the research was done. The research was done predicated upon that. They had successful outcomes. It was validated. Everybody said, oh yeah, if you do it that way, it will work. And it did. But that was based on a bus schedule in Texas at an Air Force base. Is there an effective load on this stuff? Yeah. Well, so like, is the, there a cumulative load kind of? The answer is we don't know. So there's a bunch of ways that we can dose oxygen and we can understand how oxygen is dosed. It's called um, oxygen toxicity units sure. or unit pulmonary toxic dose. But we usually, we generally use that to kind of start to calculate the toxic behavior of oxygen, which it, there is no good without some sort of bad, right? You, you're going to get something bad out of the end of it on the, on the back end, but the, you can avoid it pretty, pretty easily. But so we calculate the unit pulmonary toxic dose, but that's about it as far as dosing goes. Because you could breathe 100% oxygen here on the surface and get 800 oxygen tolerance units, which is the same as going in a hyperbaric chamber for a couple hours at 2.0, right? So you can get them. Now, does that mean that this equals that? Shit, I don't know. Nobody knows. Okay. I'm sorry that most of my answers are going to be no, I I, well, know. I, like, uh, <laughs> like, and it's not just I, we. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I, you know, if if nobody's done the research in the past and nobody's really put like millions of dollars or billions of dollars behind it to fund it, how do you really know? Yeah. So, like for instance, I'm trying to fund I'm trying to fund a research study right now for post COVID. Now, what happened? What happened was I had a young lady that approached me that was trying to go for surgery. She was in her 40s, marathon run a great deal. You know, she had COVID, hit pretty bad, blah, 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 blah. We went through a whole bunch of the qualifiers to see if she could get in there. The problem is she had a really low FEV1, force expiratory volume, whatever. It doesn't matter. It was in the 60s. So the anesthesiologist is like, look, I cannot put you under anesthesia for you to go in for the procedure that you need. Um, so I'm not going to be able to do that. You got to get better. So she comes to me in like this last ditch effort. She's like, can, can you help me? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know whether that's going to help or hurt. So she's like, well, I'm willing to try. And I'm like, okay, I'm willing to do a study on it. So we did the FEV one before she went in and the FEV after she got out. And this girl came to me when I say meek and like, I could barely breathe. She could barely expire to talk to you. 
And then by 10 treatments, I could not shut her up. And her FEV1 score was now in the 90s. So it was ridiculous. So we're like, hey, we want to get some funding for this. Hey, we want to get some good funding for, you know, nobody's funding. Nobody's, nobody wants to see this stuff work. So it's like, I don't know how the hell to do it other than just by guessing. Is it because they don't understand it? but they understand what they are applying, so they just lean on that? Well, I mean, like, I I was trying to think, like, where's the money? I mean, you know, like, if whenever Cooey you look bono. at that, well, I mean, that, who, well, that's the who benefits, but when you think about, like, like where's the money involved? Um, you know, obviously, uh, the chambers yeah. are really, like, the big deal, but that's kind of a one-time purchase. Yep. So, I mean, what is it, the uh, liquid oxygen that you would need? No, I mean, that's, that's almost cheap. nothing. I think I pay. I mean, I get that at the welding shop for nothing. Yeah. No. I think I pay $900 <laughs> to have somebody deliver, you know, 10,000 cubic feet of liquid oxygen. So I wouldn't even blink an eye at that. But it's, you know, the chambers are about 80 grand a piece. And then, you know, so you got two of them and then you're using the liquid oxygen up, whatever. It's mostly the piping and the install. I set up that center and I'm about 250 into it. So I have my own center in Tampa and it's like, oh, whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to help people. So when I designed this, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not motivated by money. Thank God I'm not motivated by money anymore. And I'm like, okay, I want to do some good. So I'm trying to treat with Kirk, PTSD, TBIs. Uh, we're in clinical demonstration projects with the VA center that's local to Tampa. And we're trying to help kids. So I'm like, look, if you had a TBI or PTSD and you're a military kid, you just come in and you'll get treated. And they're like, well, what insurance won't pay for it? And I'm like, I don't care. Come in and you'll get treated. And they're like, Oh, that's really nice. But then, of course, these guys don't want to come. No, they don't want to go. Because nobody wants to admit, well, oh, I'm hurt. I'm broken. No, the problem is, is um, nobody values free stuff. No. Yeah. I mean, uh, that that's the one thing that's really blowing my mind is like, if it's free, people are like, don't want it. So now if they can steal it and it has value, <laughs> then they'll get in there. But it's uh, it's an interesting thing. If it's free, it obviously doesn't have any value. Yeah, that's pretty sad. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it, it's true. I mean, it's it, it's a weird observation that, uh, so, you know. So really savvy business guy. What do I do? I just really want to help. So uh, tell me what the hell I'm supposed to do. Ah, man, like, um, so the hyperbaric place that I went in Newport Beach yep. uh, is basically selling life extension. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is they've convinced a lot of rich people uh, that they can do a combination of, um, you know, uh, exosome stem cells. And then they can use the hyperbarics as accelerators. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is, is that uh, I don't think that they're really doing the hyperbarics based off of our conversation right now. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I remember us discussing hyperbarics uh, when we met, geez, uh, years ago back at that weird house <laughs> thing that, that conference with the with, stuff and the people in the yeah. thing <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but as uh, i remember you talking about uh like a hood and a breathing apparatus yeah. and then when i went to go do it i like laid down they gave me this little mass that was like pss, like pushing out a little oxygen and i laid in it and i thought man this isn't at all like uh like joe talked about but what the fuck do i know yeah no and 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 it's sad because you have these people that are selling that hope and I'm not saying that it's not going to work, but I'm saying that that's not what the current study is. Like the Israelis did just did a great study, came out last year, and it was on hyperbarics and anti-aging. And we were talking about yeah. that yesterday. Yeah, with the telomeres. The, the telomeres, right? So so it extends the length of the telomeres, and it's like, holy mackerel, this actually For works. you guys that um, don't know what a telomere is and don't listen to Ben Green's podcast, or Ben, ben Greenfield's podcast. Ben Greenfield. Yeah. Uh, telomeres is uh, like... Uh, 
I'll let you explain it. You do a better job. I'm going to butcher this. Well, so so on the end of the DNA, that helixical type of a coil thing, you have these little feet that protect the DNA itself. So every time you replicate DNA, and that's what DNA does is it replicates, you can only get like 60 or so replications, I don't know, 60, 70, whatever it is. And each time those little, that little end on the shoelace, that little plastic end, right, that little tip, each one, it kind of cuts off a little bit more, cuts off a little bit more each time you replicate it. So when you're in hyperbarics, what it does is it lengthens those telomeres. And I mean, to a measurable amount. Now, you asked me how much it was, and I said, shoot, I don't know. So I went and looked it up. Oh, it, oh we like, did. Nice. Because I'm goofy like that. Yeah, yeah, like, no, I like huh, it. I wonder how much. So it's like a third more in a period of nine, uh, in a period of 20, 40, 60 days. In a period of 60 days, which is three months of hyperbarics. So wow. a third increase. And I was like, that's substantial. So, so when they measure that, and um, I, I know there's a bunch of stuff you can like send your blood away, and they'll give you your uh, biological age, yeah. where they'll measure your telomeres. Yeah, uh, which seems like total bullshit to me because then that would have to involve some form of standardization, and I guarantee right. they don't have enough standardization to be like, okay, this is you know from these ten thousand subjects, this yeah. is the telomere length of a twenty year old, a thirty year old, forty year old, fifty year old. Right. And based upon all of this, we know what like the standard deviation and the aggregate of it is. Yeah, when you get eight billion samples, then we can come talk about averages and stuff like that. You when you got tens, twenties, hundred thousands, I'm like, you you got nothing. (laughs) Well, yeah, and and so you send it away, and they're like, oh, you're the biological age of a forty year old, and you're you know, and you're like, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, unless you're twenty, and then you're like, yeah, but uh, you know, so. All we know is, hey, uh, and I also believe that, you know, obviously everybody's genetically a little bit different. So how much telomere does somebody start with? It's not like we test people at day one. Right. Well, that's what we did in this hyperbaric experiment is we tested them at day one. So we took out the individual susceptibilities vary, right? So we tested them on day one. We did all these biomarkers. When I say we, it wasn't me, just for the full disclosure. It was the Israelis. The Israeli guys. And I mean, these guys did a hell of a study. When I say hell of a study, they did crossover, blinded, controlled. I mean, it's one of these like, and when you pick up the study, you go, oh, they really uh, wanted to make sure that it passed the When it comes muster. to um, like any of the um, uh, peptides or any of like the really cool life extension stuff, all mm-hmm. the bitch and research is in Israel. Oh. I, I, I watched an incredible, um, it, well, it was on YouTube, but uh, it was an incredible like presentation that this Israeli doc who works at this big clinic, it's mm-hmm. all you know, funded, basically gave about a biological joint replacements. And as I'm watching this, uh, you know, I'm thinking like, wow, this is 10 years. And then he puts up the research that they've been doing this on people for two or three years. And now he's presenting. So, I mean, this is happening now. So the idea that people are going out and they're getting their, you know, knee cut out and basically putting stainless steel parts in when these guys are in Israel actually doing the clinical research on how to do biological joint replacements to the point where they were like opening up a knee um, doing uh, laser imaging, then using the laser to make adjustments within the bone, oh. and then putting all the all the growth factors back in, stitching it all up, and then letting it basically grow. And it's a biological joint replacement. It's that that's some cool stuff that's happening. And, only not here. Well, <laughs> why? Why the committee why for the protection of human subjects? I'm Is, sorry, did I say that out loud? Well, no. I mean. Um, Think about how I mean. Have, I mean, Nate's sitting in the room, and I know he knows about joint replacements because he he worked in medical tech. But if you've ever watched a joint replacement, uh, it's more similar to what I do up in the shop when I'm working on my cars. Like they're basically hacking it out, put it in like <laughs> lots stainless of, steel, lots of hammering. Oh, dude, they they have Grinding. all these they have all these bitch and Makita drills. I mean, like all this surgical stuff, and it's something that these guys can relatively do. And there's a huge cost. It's like 40 G's to get this insurance mm-hmm. pays for it. 
and you can knock them out. It's a lot harder to now all of a sudden bring in some AI to do a scanning and a, a you know a remodeling of the knee with lasers and all these other factors. It's just like fucking cut the parts out and replace them instead of rebuilding. So the idea of like restoring a car opposed to just replacing the parts. Yeah, why be you when you can be new? Yeah. <laughs> and so. and then and then all of a sudden in 15 years you're going to get a replacement and you need another one. Exactly. So there's a little annuity involved. But you can only get two. You can get three, I think. Because every time they do, they resect more and more bone, and then you get to the point where you're just, you know, you, you got metal legs. It's a risky surgery, but. Well, the, the other one, too, and nobody's talking about is the biofilm on the joints, uh, on the joint replacements. So when they take the replacements out, they analyze them, and there's a biofilm uh, that's uh, growing on the stainless steel on, on the metal that uh, is fucking toxic, and that's causing uh, problems. So that's causing sickness. So that's a really interesting one is this biofilm. So they, that's why they have to go in and not only the joint wears out, but the biofilm ends up becoming like a toxicity factor. So now they have to replace the joints uh, for I, that to replace it. That was also the plot in the Logan, Wolverine, how he was dying. Yeah. The, the metal was killing him. Yeah. Uh, so that's actually... What's, real? Yeah. What's, what's, yeah. So that, that biofilm's a trip. So it's interesting that you bring that up because here we are. It's a perfect segue back into hyperbarics, right? Everything. There's nothing that isn't a segue back into hyperbarics. Uh, it's, it's funny because the, the, one of the mechanism of actions that are peer-reviewed, known, published literature stuff is toxin inhibition. So it's like yeah. when you can inhibit these toxins from getting... To, so, so if you do that kind of surgery and then you copy it with hyperbarics behind it or you jump in with hyperbarics before and hyperbarics afterwards. I mean, hyperbaric stems collagen production and collagen is not just what you inject in your lips as you guys know, but maybe the audience necessarily doesn't. Collagen is the building block of every freaking cell in your whole body. Sure. Right, so you're gonna build. You're gonna be able to build more stuff. You're gonna be able to repair things with the uh, CD34 plus progenitor stem cells. You get the repair action going. You get the collagen production. I mean, it's like a. It's like an essence of goodness in in and the toxin inhibition. I mean, all of that happens, and you don't have to do anything except breathe in and out, repeat as necessary. Why aren't we doing this? Because it's voodoo witchcraft. That's why. Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, here, uh, like. Man, um, I, I really don't have an explanation. <laughs> uh, like uh, years ago, I remember when I first met Dr. Inkledon uh, out in Arizona, he had a machine um, that you, it was like a bubble, almost like a bod pod that you sat in. Yeah. And it uh, would simulate uh, taking you down different atmospheres. Sure. And uh, the research, and I, I just remember, is uh, all viruses went away. So he had, uh, uh, the only thing they'd really tested it on was like herpes simplex one and two. Mm -hmm. And it basically just eradicated herpes in the body. And like, I remember really? him showing me this research and he's like, we don't know what it does, but in terms of people, and, and the reason I went to him was I got uh, infected with toxic mold. <sighs> so uh, when I first went to Kansas City, they had me living in this hotel and I got like deathly sick. Mm -hmm. uh, like to the point where like, I remember calling my buddy Bob Sapp and being like, dude, I got leukemia. I, I entered my symptoms into Google. And oh, Google no. came, basically told me, don't, don't ever enter your symptoms into PubMed or into Google. <laughs> but it came out that I had leukemia. And so I like go to the doc and they're like, we're going to, you know, I'm like, something's fucking wrong. Like all of a sudden my hair was thinning. It was getting gray. Like I was losing muscle. Like I couldn't get out wow. of bed. I had all this body ache. So I go see Dr. Inkledon. He runs like every test he has. Yeah. And he calls me back like a week later and he's like, you have uh, toxic mold. You are, uh, of all 10 that I tested, your level was so high that it's basically shutting down systems. Oh. So he got me on all these antivirals. I got in this, uh, this machine and uh, probably about three weeks later, all of a sudden I started feeling better. 
So when I went back to Kansas City, I went to that back to that hotel. They, yeah. they had closed it down because one of the guys that worked there got Legionnaire's disease. Oh my God! Which What's is black mo- uh, black mold in the air in the AC, and they breathe it in, and it's yeah. fucking That's like it's airborne. a resp- yeah airborne yeah. respiratory. Oof. So that guy, they basically shut the place down and fucking just probably burned it to the ground. Uh, I hope. Uh, yeah, we hope, or you know, maybe they didn't. Um, but that was kind of how I got you know in this idea and understanding like this toxic mold deal, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, and then there's some interesting research with toxic mold and yeah. hyperbarics. Yeah, we we actually treat that uh, a little bit at my center too, and that's an off-label indication. But remember, off-label indication isn't such that it doesn't work. It's just that there's not a huge body of evidence that it works. So, and it's not accepted. Now, I'll give you a little segue into this. As you know, this is all about the money, right? Sure. So, we approved we they the undersea hyperbaric medical society approved a condition called central neural hearing loss so that happens it's approved uh at like four years ago at this point uh, it's one of the newest approved symptom that we have so you can treat it however insurance still doesn't pay for that and that's, this is hearing loss due to diving no this is hearing loss like it's sudden idiopathic it's one of these like okay i just woke up in the middle of the night and i could not hear out of my right ear wow just happens right so it happens from sometimes we think it's a cranial nerve issue uh, i'm not really sure about the whole ideology of it but the bottom line is when you get these people, this is like an immediacy of care thing. Because if you don't get this thing treated right away, you go to an ENT right away. They do the injection through the uh, through the tympatic membrane of these steroids. That's the first course of action. If that doesn't work, you do hyperbarics immediately within three days. I mean, because otherwise your chances of recovering your hearing are really bad. But that is a, I mean, to me, you wake up one day and you are deaf. That's a pretty freaking big deal. And your insurance isn't going to pay for it. It sounds like Bell's palsy almost. Uh, Maybe. Or Ball's palsy. <laughs> what did I say? Bell's palsy. <laughs> but uh, uh, the um, kind of similar in that it's like kind of like a neuropathy in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah, and it's hemispherical. So yeah. maybe that maybe that is the thing. I don't know. Is the I mean, answer, that'd be an interesting one. Um, <laughs> I mean. Once again, we could be doing research on this kind of stuff. This is the kind of cool stuff that we should be doing research on, not whether or not this chemotherapeutic agent is going to be, you know, enough to kill everything in your body. <laughs> Because this pro, you know, we are the premier podcast in strength conditioning and other really just epic stuff like this conversation. Uh, you know, years ago, I did a talk for Naval Special Warfare that was basically uh, the title was be called "Becoming Bulletproof," and I had this theory that if we could, you know, and it's basically based on Wolverine that if I could ramp up, you know, immune function because really that's what Wolverine is. Mm-hmm. He his immune uh, system is so uh, yeah, like so, so amazing that like he gets cut and he heals instantly. So when I started looking at mechanisms for immune function, yep. the window of the immune system was the small intestine. Right. And so if you can improve the quality and the health and like the permeability and all the factors and remove toxins and irritants and all the other bullshit out of the small intestine, which becomes, you know, the way station for the body is the villi pull everything through the, you know, the wall of the small intestine, mm-hmm. you can effectively ramp up immune function. And if you want to look at somebody's immune function and how healthy their immune system is, you look at that small intestine health. Yep. Um, and what we found is that if your immune system can be hyper-focused on recovering and protein synthesis and allowing you to perform at a higher level, then you can put on more muscle and you'll do better. And all of a sudden our programs are like fucking taking steroids. Yep. Uh, 
is there a research or is there any indications for like improving immune function through hyperbarics, which might be a player for putting on more muscle? Yeah. So there's not research for that specifically. Specifically, so Well, I, th- I like the anecdotal stuff. Right. So that's exactly it. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that goes towards that. So for instance, um, when we do this application, we kind of sort of apply these mechanisms of actions across a broad, broad spectrum and we go, hey, this probably should work. I mean, if it works here, it goes, say, you know, it says to go that it might go that way. So as we go down this road, we're trying to get a whole bunch of evidence together when it comes to hyperbarics for wellness, which I think sure. is the road you're going yep. down. So we have a little bit of that right now. Was it that obvious that I was trying to give you this <laughs> yellow brick road to follow? It's like softball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, knock it out of the park, Joe. So so with wellness, I'll give you a little, a little segue into it. When we treat, there's something called the Marks Protocol, which is a very well-established dental procedure for uh, osteoradial necrosis of the mandible, right? So the mandible's got this one little hinge spot and it's really poorly perfused area. So when you get cancer in the jaw, you need to have that removed. So what we do is we do 30 treatments beforehand for what? To pre-oxygenate the area, to prep the skin, to prep the load, to oxygenate that bone, to get it better off than it was before. And then we do the procedure, which is either unhinging it or cutting it out or whatever the cancer treatment is. And then we do 10 treatments after. So why do we prophylactically treat the area (laughs) and then just do 10 treatments after? Well, it's because we're trying to prep the collagen production. We're trying to stem the CD34 plus progenitor stem cells. We're trying to ramp up the body's immunoresponse to this. So it's, it's, the evidence just seems to be right there, but there is no direct correlation to that. So to me, I go, oh, that, that speaks very loudly, but it's not the end all be all. You know, mm-hmm. we just haven't done studies because, you know, it costs hundreds and thousands of dollars to do a study like that, then, you know, to do a good one. And then the thing about a study is it has to be reproducible. So not only do I have to do the study, then Billy Bumbats over in Alabama has to go do the same exact study the same way. And then he has to come out, you know, the same exact way. Otherwise it's, it's bogus science, right? Or it's cooked. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah. Which is, uh, it's pretty interesting, especially with a lot of the stem cell and exosome stuff that people are, you know, doing these studies, but they're unreplicatable. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, you know, and that's, that's like the frozen crystal study. <laughs> Do you ever hear that one? No. Oh, it's just, it's a good uh, one. Please go. <laughs> frozen crystal study. So this, so this, uh, this Asian uh, researcher decided that if he took, uh, water and then he played heavy metal music and then froze it it froze and there were all these ugly structures that came out of it but if you put it next to a word that said love in japanese apparently if you put it next to a word that said love and then froze it it made these beautiful crystals and like nobody's ever been able to reproduce this but they were like heavy metal music is bad and the word love is good even though it's in a different language even though it's a, i'm like so let me get this straight. so Science. what you're saying is that water is uh multilingual there you go it understands japanese yeah exactly <laughs> or Chinese, whatever it was at that point. I was just like, that's just, it's laughable because, you know, we believe everything. <laughs> so, um, I mean, obviously you have a theory about the mechanism for all this stuff. So sure. uh, as we're, you know, oxygenating the body and using pressure and forcing mm-hmm. it in, like what's the physiological response that's happening? So your body is, so for instance, back up a little bit, 1918, we treated, you said there's an antiviral, there's a, a viral yeah. component. Well, there's an antiviral component to oxygen and we treated the 1918 flu back in the day with hyperbaric oxygen. Everybody's like, really? Why didn't we treat COVID with that then? And I'm like, I tried. Because respirators were way more expensive <laughs> to give people, which is really funny because uh, if you read the clinical research on respirators, 85% of the people that go on a respirator have a seizure and die. 
Yeah. That, that was one of the questions I had is your take on the respirators, but. Yeah, no, respirators. I mean, look, I can sit here and armchair quarterback it, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that in March, I proposed to the newspaper, to the university, to the hospitals in the area of Tampa. I said, here's what I think is going on. And they were like, you just don't understand. And I love it when MDs tell me I don't understand. I'm like, oh, really? So, so explain it to me, would you? Because apparently I don't understand physiology in the human body, but okay, whatever. You know, so uh, I, I tried to push hyperbarics as a way to reduce the need for getting people into, into the respirators. But that nobody wanted to hear it at that point. Well, usually, um, at least in my personal experience, the reason I like dealing with PhDs that are doing research because they're actually current. The right. problem that I do is I run in with MDs. Is uh, this is what I was taught in the book, and then that stopped at this point. And then I go to some, you know, uh, you know, pharma, uh, pharmacological, uh, you know, weekend continuing education units where we play golf and we get talked about like the best and the new drug to get pushed. Right. So I mean, at least a research scientist, a person that's in the field, is actually doing the study and is current on this stuff. So I will let you know something that when I figured it out, found it out, it freaking blew my mind. There is a 14-year farm-to-table gap when it comes to uh, science. And that means there's a 14-year timeline before I do some kick-butt research and it gets published in a peer-reviewed journal to when an MD goes, hey, we should start using that. 14-year wait. Can somebody explain yeah, that well, to that's me? That's why like, we don't. That's why we don't mess with that shit. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> no. I, well, I mean, that's that's what's fascinating. So, all right, let, let's get back to the mechanism. <laughs> so, uh, like, you know, I mean, uh, is it uh, oxygen saturation within like the body, within the tissue? I mean, how like how does this effectively work? I mean, you talked about the antiviral with it. Yeah. So there's a lot that's going on that we just truly don't know, and even even maybe that I don't know. I mean, because there's a lot of cellular biology that's going on, but I know that a lot of the problems that we had, especially in response to COVID, for instance, was your immune response, right? So if we could, if we could dampen our own immune response, we would have done a lot better with COVID because your body just ramps up this thing called reactive oxygen species, reactive nitrogen species, and your body just kind of gets a little bit out of control. And that systemic inflammatory response Maybe you guys heard of it as cytokine storm or something like that they're calling it nowadays. This is, that's exactly what was happening in COVID was everybody was getting these big, huge inflammatory responses. And that just had second and third order consequences, which drove them into multi-system organ failure. You know, So, so if you're in the process where you can prevent this stuff from happening slow or repress the immune system, which is something leukocyte oxidative killing is one of the things that we have in hyperbaric oxygen that it does. And you go, if you could kind of dampen that immune response, you could be a little better off. So that's one of the possible mechanism of actions. I know that works. Hyperbaric action, hyperbaric oxygen does have that as one of the mechanisms of action. So I'm loosely applying. I mean, well, I think people always think about uh, like in reverse on the immune system, like the stronger your immune system is, the least it notices shit. So like if, you know, like if, uh, you know, and and I'm sure this has happened to me. This is kids, by the way. This is kids. It goes, oh yeah, that's it. Walk it off. (laughs) Well, uh, like age is by far your best indicator for immune function. Like the younger you are, the stronger your immune system is. And the funny part, uh, or actually the more more fucking tragic part (laughs) is we shut schools down. Where I'm like, schools are by far their best petri dish for them to go and trade coronaviruses and all this other nasty shit. And then those things, those kids become super highways of like the most powerful, uh, you know, uh, like immune function in the, on the planet. Not and, super and, spreaders, but the exact opposite. Exact of super opposite. <laughs> and I only know this because uh, I'll just give you a, a little antidote. A couple of years ago, um, I remember 
working out in the gym as I was walking down from the building, all of a sudden I got like this terrible hip ache. And like, like, like my hips started aching. And I always remember Louis Simmons being like, oh, you'll know you need to get your hips replaced when the pain is so bad that you can't walk. And as I was walking, I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm going to need a double hip replacement, you know? <laughs> so I walked into the house and my wife's like, uh, you know, like I just went, walked right in and laid on the couch. And she's like, you okay? And I'm like, uh, I don't know what the fuck's going on. She's like, well, you're going to die? I'm like, not today. <laughs> uh, but I was like, let me just lay here. I laid on the couch for two days. And like I had like so much backache and hip and I, I had all this like muscle pain. And um, the end of two days, all of a sudden it went away. I got up and then I get an email from the kid's school that there had been something going around called fifth's, fifth's disease, yeah, which is know. some disease that, that like these kids are getting. And it looks like uh, some bumps on the kid's skin. And so as I'm laying there, I'm like, huh, that's a weird one. So I Google it and I'm like, fifth disease in adults, severe joint ache and oh. all of my fucking <laughs> symptoms. Dude, the kid. You so, and Google, right? Dr. Google. So these, uh, the kids who had zero bumps, and I think Kate was, I was like, hey, did the kids have any bumps? She's like, Jamie has a few on her arm, and uh, but she's fine. I'm like, so she got bumps, and this fucking laid me out for two days with, with joint ache to where I thought I was going to have to get my hips replaced. And that's when I realized, I'm like, first of all, these kids are like super factories for this stuff. Oh, yeah. Things that don't even bother them will knock me out for two days. Yep. And... Let's close schools down. I'm like, okay, now if you tell me we close schools to save teachers, I'm okay with that. Yeah. But kids, it doesn't affect them. Yeah, no, not as much. But, you know, my old man used to say, it sucks getting old, but it beats the alternative. So, yeah, I know it does. <laughs> it sucks. But, yeah, you know. Yeah. I'd have taken better care of myself if I thought I was going to live this long. Dude, it's one sure. of my favorite lines. If I'd oh. known I was going to live this long, I would have definitely taken better care of myself. My knees, my back. my And you see me hobbling around the gym in the morning. I'm like, oh, 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 oh. Don't do that. Hey, well, belt squat. You're moving well. Uh, yeah, it, it I mean did. that's it why worked. we have so many different implements in the gym because uh, there's always a way to do something. Yeah, you know, and as long as you're doing something, you're better than doing nothing. Yeah. By the way, the implements is short for implements of destruction. <laughs> just in case you didn't know. Oh, yeah. I'm hobbling today, but it's good. It's a good hobble. It's better, good. better than the other hobble that I had when I first came in. So, what do you think would uh, like? What would have to happen to get hyperbarics? into a situation where it becomes like part of the common conversation where now it's like, Hey, you know, you're going to go do this, but before, you know, Hey, you're going to need this surgery, mm -hmm. but beforehand we're going to do hyperbarics. Like what's going to get that onto the more onto the public scale. So we are, we are working with, for instance, uh, surgeons right now. I'm, I got a couple of surgeons that are in the referral process to us that see 40% faster healing and a 30% reduction in infection. So if you, if you do hyperbarics with me prior to, you pre-oxygenate the skin and then you cut into the skin, it has all those co extra collagen production that's there, the extra stem cells that are there, the extra boost on the immune system, the, you know, the antitoxins, so forth. Uh, all of that is in play as you're doing it and then you do the surgery and then you follow up more, 30% reduction. That, to me, if I was a numbers guy and I was drawing infections, I'd go, shit, if I can reduce the prospect of infection on the backside of it, I would do it from an insurance perspective. So I think that money drives the world. So I think if we were going to make things mainstream, it would be that somebody makes that money case to the insurance agencies. And what I'm trying to do right now is knock on the HMO's door and go, guess what? I think I can help your people and, you know, for less price and, and drive down the fees that they're going to have long-term. But the problem is you need 10,000 studies and, you know, a million people go through your thing before somebody will go, maybe we should try that. Hmm. Are there other centers that are um, as technologically probably proficient as yours? No. Um, I, I don't know 
I, I'm sure there are. Uh, we, we, we just set up this center and, and I just do it to feed my habit, right? So my habit is research, right? I'm sure. like, hey, what are you addicted to? Yeah, research, just give it straight to me and I'll be able to do it. But it, all this does is funnel money in for my research stuff. But a normal center, you can just, you could start a center. You can get sure. certified. You could just have your own center and you could be the guy. Well, now, how much do you know? Uh, depends on you, man. There's you seem a, to know a lot. But. There's, a re, there, there's a center here in Austin and I went and checked it out. Um, you know, Parsi was talking to me about, um, you know, here, here's the time, the atmospheres and kind of went through your protocol. Yep. And so uh, as I reached out and so I, I just did some ancillary research on some places in the area. And uh, as I was kind of looking at like the difference in the machines and the protocols, I'm like, man, there's no standardization in this. Yeah. How, do, how do I know that nope. they can replicate Joe's nope. protocol? Exactly. So, you know, I used to date that girl that was here in Austin, Texas, and, uh, yeah. and yeah. she was going to hyperbarics. And she's like, oh, yeah, I take my computer in there all the time. And I just go into my street clothes. And I'm like, oh, you're killing me because bad things are going to happen in there. And, you know, so, th so there's a couple of places that it's just not going to work to bring a computer in or a uh, phone. Why? So what happened? Yeah. Well, so if you look at these phones that we're carrying around, there's so much energy density in that phone that when we took it out and shot it, because we had guys carrying their cell phones into, into fights, into firefights. And we're like, look, don't carry your cell phone into a firefight. They're like, why? I'm like, because if that pierces and that battery carries away, you're going to burn your skin with an arc that's hot enough to weld, for crying out loud. So there's a lot of energy density in there, and it's not made to be pressurized. It's not a lot of pressure, but another 15 pounds per square inch or another 30 pounds per square inch, depending on what table you're on. Oh, my God, these things have detonated and squeezed. Why do you think they tell you if you drop your airplane, if you drop your phone on the airplane under the seat, don't move your seat to go look for it because you might break it? Well, that's because if you break that thing wide open on an airplane, you have an uninterruptible cascade of energy that's just going to freaking blow up. Oh, yeah. And there now was, mix that with oxygen. Yeah, there was a line of phones, Samsung, a while back that were blowing just, up, just, burning in flight. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, One of the notes that they Lots had to cancel. Lots of energy density. And think, think about how much energy density is in that, that laptop that you have there. If that is huge, that's got to be even more. And it's like, holy man. Everybody wants the device to last all day, all week, or whatever, without having to charge it. So, yeah, it's great. <laughs> but you don't take these things inside hyperbaric chambers because oxygen and other things that you weren't born with do not mix well together. So when she was talking about that and talking about that center, I was like, listen, either you got to distance yourself from them or... If they have a catastrophic fire or an event, he, 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 they're going to just make all of us look stupid because the oxygen bar in the mall is the same thing as the moderate or mild hyperbaric oxygen that the person has in their backyard with the dog climbing in it is the same thing as my center is the same thing as the hyperbaric center that's in the hospital. Why? One of them blows up. We all look stupid. Sure. So, uh -huh. you know, you, you, you're guilty by association. So it's, it's like, kind of like guns like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That gun that went off and shot those three people. Whatever. Yeah. Now <laughs> don't we have, even to, get me we have to ban all them. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> wow. Um, what, um, Obviously, and, and I know I'm uh, belabored this point, um, you know, there was a protocol set up. Have you tested other protocols? Like, um, you know, hey, we know that it, you know, one and a half atmospheres, two atmospheres, three atmospheres. Like, have you done, you know, played with atmospheres, times, you know, duration, saturation? All that? Yeah, no. So I'm, I'm on this kid's external committee for his PhD. And uh, as we talk through it, we're just talking about that right now. Like, hey, let's see what exactly happens if we do this same treatment at 1.5, at 1.75, at 2.0. 
let's measure it all. So we're scoping it out. We're like, oh yeah, this is probably going to be a million two, million three to, to work it all out. And it's like, it's, that's a lot of money for somebody to find funding for, to do this kind of research, to figure out the, the eaches of whether 1.5 is going to work or 1.75 or 2.0. It's like, no, we have the protocols that were built and they're established in stone. Why? Because nobody can afford to treat you know, to do these things and do this much research nowadays and just, just to find an answer for something that we're 94.3% sure is going to work anyway. So screw it, just do it. Wow. Well, I always wonder, um, even though you know it's going to work, like what other, uh, you know, ancillary effects are going to happen? Like all of a sudden you're like, dude, when we went to 2.0, uh, all of a sudden, like, you know, we saw, uh, who knows, I don't know, a fucking physical age. All of a sudden, you know, you're like Mork and Mindy. All of a sudden, uh, right. you know, Jonathan Winters shows up and then the baby, you the know, baby. the baby shows yeah. up on the other side when you de-age. <laughs> He's looking at you like, you got 10 heads. He's going, who's uh, Mork and Mindy? <laughs> I know it was Robin Williams. But. So, so Robin Williams, our favorite show when I was a little kid, and and you know Joe remembers his show. But so Robin Williams was uh, more convinced he was an alien. Yeah, I know that much. Well, uh, so so what happens is in uh, on their planet, it's like a reverse aging. So like you're born as an as an old person, and then Benjamin you, Button. No, which yeah, well, uh, it was Jonathan Winters who you guys. He didn't get the reference either. <laughs> First of all, Jonathan Winters was probably one of the best comics. He uh, was actually in an insane asylum. I mean, legitimately, the dude was crazy and was so funny, but he was on that show. And then, like, I remember, like, the people who were in charge from Mork's Planet showed up, and they were all, like, little kids. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we always joke about, like, the reverse aging of Mork and Mindy. Oh, yeah. No, so... Nanu, they... Nanu. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, I think we just dated ourselves. Yeah, no, I, I am old. Thank you. Well, no, I mean, people are listening. They're like, who the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> God, what year was that show? It had to be early Look it 80s. up. It was friggin' hilarious. I think the first episode, like Mork came in through uh, Fonzie and Happy Days, if you remember. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. So it was like the first episode, and then they were like, oh, spinoff series. So what? you're looking it up on the Google machine. What is I it? Am. <laughs> uh, 1981? Yeah, I'm old. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Dude, Happy Days. Man, I remember when he jumped the shark and that was the end of Happy Days. And then that spawned the phrase, jump, jump the, the shark. shark. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're all out of ideas. Uh, you know what's hilarious is I used, like, I'd heard that term, jump the shark, and I never put two and two together that it was the Fonzie when he went over and he jumped the shark. Yeah. And like that was the end of their show because it was just so like fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And now, and then when I think you told me that reference, I was like, oh, fuck, that makes so much sense. Yeah. I forget where I heard it, but... Then they, I saw the clip, and it was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's stupid. Oh, that makes perfect Don't sense. Don't you remember he's wearing his leather jacket with, like, shorts, and he's on the water ski? <laughs> uh, well, oh. Henry Winkle, uh, Winkler, yeah. I b- believe. Yeah. He, man, he's hilarious. He's in, oh, I mean, the water boy, oh, coach. Yeah. <laughs> but then a new show, Barry. It was HBO. It was oh, pretty, it was pretty good. Right. Well, he was just living off of residuals of uh, Fonzie for all those years. Yeah, I yeah he they, probably fucking was cashing 100 grand a month. He's like, fuck, I ain't working anymore. Why would you? So, uh, so <laughs> we'll take this back. So, what's the future for this? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the, the the Achilles heel is clinical research and being able to find funding. Right. But like, where do you think 
uh, I mean, is this something where it's just kind of kind of languished, kind of like what's happened for the last 400 years? Nope. I, uh, I firmly believe that functional medicine is on the uprise. We have, you know, we got guys like this that can get on the Google machine and look up symptoms and symptomology and figure out what they need to do to get better. And they're going to look at this machine and go, oh, you mean there's about a 64% probability that I'm going to cure whatever it is that I have without doing anything? I mean, because what happens when you take a round of steroids, right? You, you, you take a, a, a medical dose pack right you, you just instantly put five or ten pounds right on your waist well what does it do anti-inflammatory well what does hyperbaric oxygen do anti-inflammatory what do i have to do oh that's pretty easy i can do that and i don't have the 10 pounds on my waist wow that's great you know so people are going to start looking into this and seeing it so i think medicine's going to take a, a shift toward functional medicine that's joe's opinion and people are going to go you know what works works and science always wins over bullshit so you know well, I, I think we're in a point where there's enough people like, um, you know, with podcasts and information and, right. you know, stuff going around, like people listen to this and all of a sudden, you know, the thousands of listeners are, you know, basically my mom and maybe your dad and maybe one other person, Nate, uh, <laughs> Nate listening to this, uh, are going to all of a sudden um, have a more in-tuned understanding of hyperbaric. So when they see it pop up, oh, hey, there's a, a place in the mall or, you know, I just went by this strip mall if you live in Florida, uh, yeah. you know. And this place has got hyperbarics. Uh, is this a quality place? Right. And so, how would somebody discern? Like, 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 give me the characteristics. Like, right. Like, so the easy thing is walk up and the chamber that they call the chamber. Walk up and knock on it. Does it make a sound? It's probably okay. If it doesn't make a sound and it's not a made out of a rigid material, it's probably not okay. So, what about like plexiglass? Can they make them out of plexi? Plexiglass. Mine are, mine are actually made out of acrylic. So same yeah. general principle. And, you know, my acrylic is like freaking an inch and a half thick. Uh, and they're over-designed for what they're designed for. And mine can go to three atmospheres. So mine are fully vetted. full and, and with vetting, with all this, with all this FDA approval for treatment of things, comes a an onus that is the NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, all the rules, stipulations, all the build criteria, all of that comes in because you can't put a hyperbaric center in a mall without doing some of the safety stuff. But these other ones, these soft ones are completely unregulated. When I say completely unregulated, I mean completely unregulated. I walked in and I'm looking at these and I'm going, so I see you have an oxygen generator right there and it only generates 90% oxygen, give or take. I mean, 85 to 95, whatever, but it's ungrounded. It's not supported. It's leaking like, you know, five liters per minute. And I'm going, what, what, what are you doing with that? And they're like, Oh, we just pump it in. And then it comes, I said, okay, well you put oxygen rich air here and then you come out the other side. What's coming out of the chambers. How do you know that you don't have to pipe that outside? Because you know, oxygen is an accelerant, right? I mean, if you pump, oxygen into this building and had all this electrical stuff you'd be like a spark right yeah. uh, just a spark could put this place up in a in a second right so they're like oh well it's it's okay i'm like well okay show me the data that says that it's okay because i worry about stuff like that like blowing up i worry about that so with with you being in a facility that has a hard chamber you're you know you can ask them if they're under nfpa guidance you know what i what i love to do is i love to walk into a center because i do center inspections that's part of one of the things that i do is from all of my experience in the navy and then uh, post navy is i'll walk into a center or a hospital and i'll do an inspection on them and say okay here are the safety things that you aren't doing that are in the nfpa or the pvho pressure vessels for human occupancy or the the other guidance that we have 
you just, it's just knowledge of a whole bunch of guidance, right? So you got to check and make sure that they do pull out, ask them to pull out their emergency procedures manual. And it should be within arm's reach of the operator. So the operator should be between a couple of chambers and it should be within arm's reach. I should be able to reach back and go, boom, here's my emergency procedure manual. I open it right up and I go to fire in the chamber. I should have the first three things, which are immediate controlling actions. I should have those memorized and I should just do those and then reach for the emergency folder and go, okay, what do I do next? Okay, now I call this number, boop, 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 boop. You know, and, and I do everything on the list. Why? Because if you have an immediate controlling action that will take care of that problem that you have, you're at least thinking through a whole bunch of safety stuff. If they don't, you should probably walk out of that facility and go, I am not going to be anywhere near you because it's your life. I mean, you're the one that's trying to get in there with a phone or whatever. I mean, I will show you some catastrophic pictures of, of people taking devices like this or even a watch with a battery. A battery powered watch was the cause of a fire in Turkey. A battery powered watch. Now, how much is batteries in a watch for crying man out i don't want to be stuck in a hard tube with oxygen if there's all of a sudden a fire because i'm basically going to turn into a, a burned hot dog yeah, a hot dog exactly yeah, I'm just turn into so a it's like we try and remove crispy all course <laughs> exactly we try and remove any of the fuel right i mean that's what you're trying to do you're trying to remove all the fuel but guess what humans are fuel I mean, you come down to it, humans can burn. So, you know, you can't remove the human out of the situation because you want to get treated. So what you got to do is you got to lessen all the other stuff. This is why you come into my center, you go into my chambers and you don't wear anything that you weren't born with. And I mean, I don't want anything in there. People are like, well, it's, it's just a tongue ring. And I'm like, I don't care. It's just a whatever ring. I'm like, I don't care. It, you Text you're going to have to take out your Prince Albert. <sighs> Amongst other things. <laughs> Too much information. Oh my God. Okay. Whip so, it out. So, how are those Dodgers doing? Are they doing good? <laughs> uh, let's get a zoom in. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to need it. <laughs> good thing we got a telephoto lens real close. <laughs> Uh, so, okay. So you're obviously, uh, buck naked when you go in. Well, you, you are wearing, you're wearing hundred percent cotton clothing, right? Oh. And, and my stuff, you, you wear it because I provide it. Now, why is that? It's only because I don't trust y'all because you're going to try and sneak your phone in because everybody tries to, you're going to try and sneak something in there, or maybe you're just going to forget that you have this on. Now, is this metal going to be a problem? Probably not. But for instance, if you're wearing titanium glasses, right? Those, everybody has these titanium frames. Now they're all the rage, right? If you break titanium at the point where you break titanium at the point where it pops, even those thin little glasses at the point where it pops, that metal gets ridiculously hot. People are like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, that's why you can't wear them in the chamber. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. So it's the kind of thing that we don't want you to have anything on. And I just go with bring nothing. And then it weeds out all of the arguments. Oh, it's just, it's inside my mouth. It's only on my nose. It's only in my earrings. It's only everything. So if you just give them one rule, then, you know. But there are plenty of uh, examples where uh, a guy in Italy, uh, do you know what a bun warmer is? <laughs> A what? A bun warmer. Bun warmer. Yeah. So my old man had one of these. Actually, my grandfather had one of these. And what it is, is it's a butane lighter. You strike it and it's an open flame and it's about this big and it's metal and it's got a whole bunch of holes in it. So it's a butane lighter that's actually, it's a Zippo lighter that's actually still firing continually. And it's inside a metal case that goes inside your butt. You hold it in your back pocket. My grandfather had one. Why? He used to keep his bottom warm in Italy. When to he, keep his ass warm. Yeah, he was like, it, was, it kept him warm. And he'd move it around. He'd put it in his upper pocket. He'd put it in his front pocket. He'd put it in his back I'm pocket. I'm so amazed we survived as a species. Uh, I, right, right. Yeah. Like, but this cat took this into a hyperbaric chamber. Oh. 
this open flame into a hyperbaric chamber. Why? Because nobody made him strip down. Nobody made him take all his clothes off. He didn't do it on purpose. He's an old dude that was, was just trying name, to keep Was warm. his name Kaboom? <laughs> yeah, well, it is now. <laughs> That's what I came Marvin the Martian? <laughs> Kaboom. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's, that's, everything's written in blood, right? So yeah. it's like, it's one of those things you go, huh, well, let's never do that again. But so let's learn from that mistake and just not bring things like computers in there and hopefully they won't explode and we won't have to explain to somebody's parents why this kid died. I mean, a kid with, with MS came over from Italy, was being treated and somebody had done maintenance on the chamber incorrectly. This is in Fort Lauderdale by the sea. I want to say it was 2001 or something like that. Came over from Italy because the Italian hyperbaric people do not mess around. They will not treat multiple sclerosis over there. So they How come? Because there's not a body of evidence behind it. And the other part with multiple sclerosis is you, you vary day to day on yeah. how you're doing, right? So like, oh, look, it's working. It's getting so much better. Yeah. And then, yeah, you go downhill. Well, it's like, uh, it's like a lot of that stuff like MS. I mean, it's constantly moving. And, right. it, and it manifests in different ways all the time. Exactly. So it's hard to pin down where the hyperbarics was the thing that was helping it. I mean, it's not like it was hurting it, but, you know, uh, we need objective quality measures to measure that kind of stuff to say, yes, this absolutely does work. Now, does it hurt it? No. But does it help it? Maybe. But the point was, they go into a monoplace chamber, which mono means one, one person inside the chamber, and the grandmother was holding the baby, and the baby was on the lap, and somebody had done some maintenance on the internal speaker inside this thing and did it poorly and incorrectly and the chamber sparked arced blew up on the inside and the grandmother died instantly and the baby survived and the hyperbaric tech that was there ran out of the room and left the people in there oh yeah oh no this really happened and then <laughs> the fire department came in had to put water on the thing so that it cooled down enough so that they could open it up they opened it up rushed the kid over to the the burn center wound up dying like i don't know four, three four days later whatever it was the point being <laughs> this is catastrophic but you got to explain to somebody that because i did poor maintenance and i'm an idiot and i didn't follow a procedure protocol whatever then now somebody's dead because it's my problem. And I'm like, I train people. We do a skills bridge program. We take people out of the military and we try and train them into something different. We do that at our center and I do that for free for the military kids and they work for me for a period of six months and I'm constantly on them. I'm like, we do not want to explain to somebody's mom or dad that their husband, wife, daughter, whatever, got a problem because we did something stupid. So you don't want to, you can't pass the New York Post test, right? You just can't. If you were on the cover of the New York Post, you did something wrong. You don't want to be on the cover unless you've cured wow. cancer. <laughs> wow. Um, damn. So six months to, to, to get up to speed and feel like you're yeah. not a complete moron with yeah. this thing. 500 hours is what I require out of these guys. And, and they, do, they do a good bit of work. Um, and it's 500 hours of actual hands-on operating so that they know. And it's, you know, look, a monkey could operate this chamber. Push the button, start it. It's computer-driven. It's not like it's even that hard to do, right? I want you to know what to do if something goes wrong. That's mm -hmm. what people pay you for is to know what to do when something goes wrong, not to know what, know how to push the button. That's easy. Sure. So, uh, is there anything that, um, you guys or that, that you know, that's been tested where, Hey, you know what? We have this theory. Let's treat it with hyperbarics. That doesn't work where you're like, wow, that fucking did nothing for it. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I would love to have a real example for you, but I, I just don't have one. Um, I know they tried to treat AIDS, um, and I don't think that did very well, but 
Once again, it just didn't hurt is the problem. The problem is short of going into a central nervous system oxygen toxicity problem, which is one of the known, you know, one of the known outliers for it or pulmonary oxygen toxicity, or like if, if Kirk had talked to you about uh, oxygen induced myopia, it's just a known thing. It accelerates cataracts. So hyperbaric oxygen will accelerate cataracts. For instance, if you have cataracts and you walk into a hyperbaric chamber and you do 20 treatments, it's going to accelerate your cataracts to the point where you just need the surgery faster. But it's not like it's hurting you. It's just going to accelerate the, the problem that you have. I, I always thought that uh, hyperbarics um, increased, like, uh, or the when I read about it years ago, there was research that there was some form of actually age uh, increasing, that it was the oxygen was forcing the cells to divide faster, which effectively was aging people. Yeah, no. No, that, <laughs> that must have been a fucking... Yeah, it's not a thing that I've ever heard of. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but that's not a well, thing Well, no, that or uh, that might have been a misconception. Because I, I think it was in relation to the hype, uh, like a hypobaric chamber opposed from like the idea that uh, people were aging slower at high altitude. Huh. And there was uh, uh, some research that they talked about that was related to cell division, that people that lived at high altitude were aging slower than people that were living at sea level. Yeah, that might be because of the uh, the compensatory mechanism in the in the body that just makes more hemoglobin. So you have more hemoglobin. So you're transporting the same amount of oxygen with more hemoglobin. So maybe that's less of a load on the body and division of cells. I don't know is the answer. Yeah. But I, I'm, yeah. yeah. You're just spitballing. I yeah, I'm it. spitballing. <laughs> so like, I'm, at least I'm, I say when I'm, I'm spitballing. I'm just thinking like, <laughs> like, as I sit here and I listen and all the research I've ever done and you know, I can't say it's obviously a, a, a fraction of what you've done, um, but I know with like all the stuff that Kirk has, for, has forwarded me, Doug yeah. Parsley, um, you know, like everything I read is so favorable. Yeah. That it's like one of these things like, how come this isn't standard procedure for everything? Right. Like uh, if, if I'm an NFL team or, you know, some uh, GM or somebody brings me into an NFL team, uh, you know, having some form of hyperbaric chamber in the facility right. that immediately after games that guys go get into uh, to reduce, you know, inflammation with not only in the yep. brain and all these, you know, speed healing, that seems like a no brainer. I mean, there's, you know, uh, like having Dr. Bueller on staff to fix, you know, the AMED and, you right. know, uh, you know, nutrition protocols and do some testing and this, sure. and like, you know, all of a sudden figure out problems before they become something that prevents somebody from doing it, like being proactive. So everything that I've read, I'm like, this seems like like a win-win in every way and it's i mean obviously the investment in uh in like the i guess the the hardware right um is really the only initial investment but yeah. once that you know like you said a monkey can operate it and oxygen's right. cheap and this is low-hanging fruit so i'm just amazed that like there aren't more people that are like oh yeah this is pretty good like this should be in every sports facility yeah so drive that to the very end if you drive it to the very end it means oh well why don't we just sleep in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber and do that thing that we said michael jackson was going to do well because there's some bad effects that come with long-term oxygen exposure i mean your body sort of kind of shuts down its ability or need to produce this stuff that's getting the oxygen transport in there why because you're getting a lot of oxygen anyway so it's like uh, are you ramping up your metabolism while you do it yes you certainly are but you can't do it long term the other problem is it's called pulmonary oxygen toxicity so if you get exposed to a large dose of oxygen unit pulmonary toxic dose and it's over 825 of those unit pulmonary toxic doses you have a four percent reduction in vital capacity so that means like 
Yeah, it's 4% less. Okay, well, that's bad, but this is why you don't want to sleep in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. So you need to go with somebody that knows what they're doing, that can put together these protocols that can help you help yourself to get better. That's all you're doing. It's just another tool in your tool bag. And yeah, but I believe it's an infrastructure problem because these things, as you will find out here pretty soon, they're, they're not lightweight. You know, yeah. <laughs> six, 7,000 pounds, you're like, oh, I need a bigger forklift. <laughs> well, the, no, I was laughing when we were talking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, uh, um, yeah, no, it was funny. It was, as we were rap- rapping about it, because uh, Doc Parsley like, hit me up, and he's like, hey, what about this? I'm like, I'm like, dude, if we got an angle grinder and a welder, we can fucking, <laughs> and a little bit of sheet metal, we can fucking fix anything. I saw Wile E. Coyote do it, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Worked out okay, fam. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, I think it's the infrastructure problem that goes with it. It's like, this is a big monstrosity and to move this around with the football teams as they fly from here to there and everybody's, you know, I mean, you can't have them everywhere or they don't have them everywhere, but they have them in certain centers. So you got to kind of drag these things. And that's what, that's what we've done is we put a couple of these right now in a bunch of tow behind, uh, trailers and we're just looking to bring the mountain to Muhammad instead of the opposite way. I mean, I, I don't know what else to do. Could, uh, look like if there was a professional athlete, um, you know, who's a current player right now, who's making, you know, $10 million a year. Yep. Uh, is it something where he could reach out and you could come build him, uh, and have, you know, one in his house? Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we don't want to have it at his house because there's all kinds of regulations that go with this sure. and it's not something that's sustainable. I had a woman that was trying to do that. She wanted to do it at her house and it was like, Ugh. oh, and people are like, well, there's no evidence that it works. And I'm going to give you evidence that it works because off-track betting does not allow you to have your horse in a hyperbaric chamber the day before the race. So that says to me that this stuff works pretty freaking well. <laughs> if the betting people go, no, that's an unfair competitive advantage, non-competitive advantage, I'm like, huh. Were people putting horses in hyperbaric chambers? Hell, yeah. They are, oh, oh, I want to die and come back Anything. a racehorse. Oh, I oh, do. Yeah. I so mean, <laughs> uh, I, I told Tex the other day and he about flipped his head. I actually owned racehorses. Did you really? Yeah. So uh, when I was in the NFL, I got involved with this group and ended up, um, there was some tax implications, but long story short, I ended up <laughs> with a bunch of racehorses and got myself into the racehorse business, had to not only go to Kentucky, sell them at auction, deal with veterinarians, boring the whole deal. I mean, I, I got deep into this thing as a matter of survival to get out of this thing. Oh my God. And it's uh, like owning a boat. Uh, <laughs> dude, it was like, the, like I, I remember when, um, so one of, one of my horses ran at the Oaks. Yeah. Uh, the day before the the Derby and ended up winning seventh horse to seventh race, and I remember like I didn't own it, I'd sold her, and uh, I was so happy. I was like, uh, yeah, it was great. I put money on her. I was so happy that the people you know did well, and I was so happy that it wasn't me, <laughs> because I knew the expense that they paid to get the horse is astronomical. But um, we got a chance to go see Stormcat. Okay. When I was in Kentucky, so Stormcat was like the king, like the best sire. Yep. He he studded three times a day, two hundred thousand dollars a pop. He would stud <laughs> sit for six months here. They had him as own plane, fly him to Australia. He would stud there. It was incredible. So they they had like a uh, like a track for him, and uh, he had like handlers, and he had like a velvet smoking jacket. And what they would do is they would start playing this music, uh-huh. and he knew it was his he fucking was like, time, uh-huh. and he would come strutting and like prance. And then they would bring him in and they had what was called the teaser mare. Yep. Where they bring like this, you know, cute little filly around and they get them all excited. And then they kind of like bring her out and then they bring out the mare and he was kind of short. So they had like a little like step and he went on there, three pumps, bang, 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 popped off, went and got a cigarette, horse took her away, (laughs) took him back. He got a massage, he got lunch, he hung out, they played music. And then literally like 
three hours later, played the music again. He was an absolute machine. I, all right, John, I got to option opportunity to expand your story here. Stormcat's offspring have collectively yeah. earned more than $120 million, including 180 stakes winners. So here's the interesting thing about racehorses. It's not what you did as a, as a, as a sire. It's what your offspring do. And Stormcat wasn't a great racehorse, but his offspring have been phenomenal. Wow. He was such a stud. I, I like <laughs> literally. I, I felt I was in the in the presence of greatness. I was like, you know what? I just want to come back as Stormcat. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you know, you get rubbed down, liniment oh, oil. You dude, know. It, it was incredible. He he had like a velvet smoking jacket. Like they they like took it off, and I was like, it's like a fucking wrestler in the ring. It's like a prize fighter. Stormcat has sired over fourteen hundred fowls. And his his many foals, his many sons have been equally prolific in the breeding shed. <laughs> oh my god, dude! If you would have seen the environment, so uh, here's another one for racehorses: they have to have live births and they have to yeah. be recorded, and there has to be witnesses. I had to sign a document that I was present, and so they like they have to see the transfer. And the best is if it doesn't take two hundred thousand a pop. If 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 the mare loses the or it, he, she doesn't get knocked up or something doesn't happen, like. And these people schedule this like you like so far in advance, and they're hoping that like the mayor is like ready. It's just it's really interesting, man. But it was uh, like the facility that we went to where we're in this like weird viewing room watching this. I'm like, this is so fucking. Is it weird. in Mexico? <laughs> no, this oh was in God. Kentucky. And uh, I mean, when you go to these ranches, I mean, like like these farms, like you've never seen fucking money like this. Like like opulence, like opulence. I has it. You know, the guy just, kisses the little like uh, giraffe. Yeah. Every, every male is in a like white suit. Dude, it was unreal. Like uh, a dude's flying in on private jets, so we got to go see it. But they had this facility, and you're like up in this thing, and these people are like bringing champagne as we're watching these horses. You know, get, I'm like, this is these, these horse mm. people are freaky people. Yeah, that's a little. But weird. Uh, <laughs> side side note, uh, I did not know about that, but there's a whole bunch of weird stuff that uh, yeah. horse racing people. But I didn't know about hyperbarics. It's oh, no. genius. As a matter of fact, there's a in Ocala, Florida. Yep. Uh, there's a famous fire uh that had happened because they brought the horse in and you're supposed to there's a bunch of procedures so there's class c veterinary chambers and these are huge chambers and and what you have to do is put like a little wrap on the horse's leg beforehand so that those hoofs don't collide with the metal and we spark and bad things happen right yeah. well the tech didn't really do that and wasn't paying attention and the horse kicked and blew up the horse blew up the tech Blew up the entire farm. I mean, is it, you can Google it. Google it, Horse Fire Ocala, and you will see the devastating uh, what happened afterwards. So it's bad. They wow. lost the horse and the lady. I mean, you know, for crying out loud, not so good. I wonder if, uh, I mean, obviously there's not as much uh, control when you start working with animals in yep. that way. I wonder what the effects that they saw within the horses. If they were, I mean... So from what I'm told, I don't breed horses. I don't do anything like that. From, from what I'm told, it's, it's ridiculously different. It's ridiculously faster. I mean, this is like, this is why I don't understand why the professional athletes that are out there are not just clamoring towards uh, this. Like, I, I hope that we have some professional athletes. I'm obviously 10 years past my opportunity to, to implement this. But if you're listening, reach out. We'll get this shit on. Think it over. And there's, there's a center by you, I guarantee you. And trust me, if you are who you are and you come knocking on somebody's door at 4 o'clock in the morning, they'll open up for you sure. so that nobody can know that you're there or whatever. I mean, that's what I do in Tampa. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's just really inconspicuous. That's so weird that Tampa won, uh, yeah, uh, Tampa won a Super Bowl. 
Wait, and Joe's in, and Joe's in, in Tampa? No. <laughs> you know, and Tom Brady's reversing and aging. He's basically like Mork and Mindy. He's just growing younger. He's growing younger. He's yeah. just, he's the greatest. <laughs> just yeah. the greatest. You know what? I was so happy to see him go out. I mean, not only do I like Tom uh, personally, like just such a cool cat, um, but... Like the fact that like he was always kind of saddled with this like oh it's Belichick and you know he wouldn't be anything with Belichick he just goes mm-hmm. to a new team and fucking torches it I'm like good for you yeah and then he goes out to that boat parade and just gets shit faced and has a great time I'm like fuck yes this is what I want to see I want to see people go out like I enjoy I, themselves yeah like we were talking about yesterday with Tate Fletcher like I'm a fan of humanity I want to see the people stand on the biggest stage and have their greatest performance and their greatest moment and prove that they're the best it's fucking great to see oh, it's great. Tate's just a great American. Just my, my uh, personal dude, uh, I love that guy. When I told him uh, uh, that you were coming on the podcast, he's like, Joe Dirt! Like, instantly. <laughs> Joe Dirt, Joe Dirt. Yeah, like instantly. He, um, I mean, because he's seen some incredible, uh, you know, like, you know, we. Um, if you guys listen to that podcast, obviously it'll come out before this one. Um, but, you know, he called me in a pretty dark place. Yeah. And has kind of gone through this, uh, you know, the you know the valley of the shadow of death kind of deal where you walk mm-hmm. through it yep. and the hyperbarics and all the other stuff he's been doing has been a huge player in fixing him so I mean it was crazy when I talked to him was it two days ago when he called me um, like as soon as he said hello I could hear it in his voice he was like dramatically different yeah and yeah. I was like dude save it let's get it on a podcast you know just just for that so it's you know it's been that cumulative effect. Well, I'm sorry that he's not going to be here this weekend while I'm here, but I'm really glad that he got the gig that he got, and he's doing great things. Yeah. So that guy deserves all the love in the world. No, I'm stoked to see him get back into it. I know uh, when he said he was going to L.A., I was like, good, because he was out of it for a hot minute. I mean, mm, you know, a long yeah. time, you know, dealing with the demons. So Right, yeah, that's dark. And he's he was talking to me about that and the protocols that he should be using, and I was like, bro, well, just come to Tampa. Just come to Tampa and freaking just move in with me. I got a spare room. My daughter's great. She loves all my crazy friends. So <laughs> just take him in. <laughs> Even Doc Parsley? Even Doc Parsley. As a matter of fact, they they are just <laughs> peas and carrots, those two. As a really? Fact, my daughter came out here with me to come to Kirk's party, to oh, come to Kirk's nice. 50th birthday party. It's like, oh, yeah, why not? Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so. I got a good segue since we're on movies. Oh. You yourself have an IMDb page. Oh. Are you aware? No. Do After I? a quick Google from your experience, and I haven't seen this documentary, Black Coral. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Todd Wynn, the Brothers Wynn did a uh, terrific. So Black Coral is one of these, like they charge a ton of money for it. And it used to grow really shallow, but now it only grows very, very deep because we've whacked out the entire crop, right? So it grows very deep, but that means you got to do two, three, four hundred foot dives to get this Black Coral. And people have been doing it in Hawaii for a long time. And it's a, it's a whole talk through the history of black coral what had happened how people died and like one of the guys during the filming of it actually died doing black coral ah that's bad stuff man but what's the deepest you've ever dove uh <laughs> 1947 feet wow it's my deepest step but you know uh it's 1947 feet but it's not like a. It's not like I wear it as a badge of honor. It's just what we did at the day at the time when we did the stuff with the people and the thing. So, wow. Uh, yeah. Were you in some form of uh, device? If you can't see me, I'm just smiling uh, because wow. I can't say. Well, <laughs> he, my question I can't is, or won't. What, uh, how many atmospheres is that? Uh, a lot. Yeah, a lot. Wow. <laughs> what? What can you share? What's the coolest, awesome thing? Two two parter that you've seen underwater. Yeah, and then the you've talked about a lot of countries here traveling and chambers, but where, where's the coolest place you've been on land? 
Oh, coolest place I've been on land. I don't know. I, uh, I loved my time in Russia because in Russia, so Russia, when they do hyperbarics, they, there are no rules. I mean, they, they there's treat, no rules in Russia. There's no rules in Russia, period. But when they do hyperbarics, they don't fall, fall under any of this IRB stuff or anything like that. So they get to do some really cool research. Now, is that always good? No, but uh, but it's not bad when you are able to treat a, a woman that's pregnant and you're able to get her through some of the issues that she's having and you're helping this person. I mean, that's a great thing to me, you know, so, uh, but Russia is probably one of the coolest places I've ever been on land uh, and pretty, pretty well landlocked country, unless you like ice and I don't like ice. Yeah, so Baltic. that's not my thing. And then the coolest thing I've ever seen underwater. Wow. Um, I probably have to go with that fish from Finding Nemo. You know, that big one with the light that comes off the end like that. You know how big that fish is? No. So the one that I saw was like this big. And when I say this big, what are we, three inches, four inches, maybe that big. I'm like, hey, uh, topside red diver, are you checking this out? It's the fish from Finding Nemo. They're like, yeah, 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 go to work, red. I'm like, yeah, but that's the fish from Finding Nemo. And they're like, yeah, yeah, go to work. I'm like, that's freaking cool. Uh, have you ever done any underwater welding? Yeah. Yeah, Dude, underwater welding. Uh, Hyperbaric welding, they call it. Yeah. But... Uh, that by far, um, I've known a few underwater welders. And like the apprenticeship is like a decade. And I mean, and then like, like the hazard pay and like the, you know, the amount of time that those guys actually like can work. I mean, it's unreal. So I was in charge of guys that did that kind of stuff. And I said, Hey, y'all need to teach me. And they're like, okay, first you need to do welding on the surface. I'm like, okay, how hard could this be? I'm like, and they're like, you suck like the Knicks. If you have Knicks fans, I'm sorry. But you know, you can't even keep a straight line. So I tried that. I tried that. I tried that. So it's like, yeah, you kind of stink at this, but since you're in charge, we'll let you kind of try this thing. So yeah, when I say I've done it, I'm not perfect. And I'm not very good at any of that type stuff. I just was the guy in charge of the guys. So yeah. No, it's a trip. I mean, they, uh, you know, it's obviously stick, it, it, it's stick welding, but like yeah. the, you know, and I know that the, uh, the rods are like encased in beeswax yeah, it's ridiculous. and then they burn through those rods. Like I, I'm, I'm like amazed. And then, you know, the amount of time, like, uh, underwater, I mean, those guys are two, three, four hours, five hours. Easily. I, um, it wasn't until, you know, I worked with the guys at, um, SDB team two in, in, uh, in Hawaii at the mm-hmm. clamshell. So I went over and I did a series of seminars for them and, when they were like, oh, yeah, no, this guy was underwater for eight, team eight, one. Uh, STV team one was in Hawaii. Was it? Okay, STV yeah. team one. Yeah. All right. Two was uh, in the East Coast. Okay, that's right. Yeah, STV team one. Um, one of the guys was uh, not doing so good, and they, he was underwater for 18 hours. Oh, that's I was, impressive. I was like, wow, that's based on these patty charts I know that fucking. <laughs> yeah, that dog don't hunt. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he's like. Mm. But these are, these are extra human yeah. type people. These are people that are in great physical condition. And so they're mixing don't try different, this home, like, right? you know, like different mixtures. Oh, they're yeah. on. Oh yeah. I mean, they have, they have the best minds in the world working on this stuff. So that they go, okay, we got to get this guy out of this situation into that situation from here through there. And here's what I have a plastic bottle, a couple of hoses and three of these pinchers. Okay, go do it. Like, how do you do it? Well, that's how you do it. You get the best minds in the world solving the problem. So, you know. Awesome. Yeah, it's good. It's cool. It's good to be part of it. Awesome. Well, dude, I really appreciate you coming on Power Athlete Radio and sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. You didn't beat me up too much. That wasn't so bad. No, 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 dude. We just give you a lot of softballs. You know, like I said, I'm a fan of humanity. I want to see the smartest people in the world stand on the biggest stage and prove themselves to be, you know, uh, as smart as we hope they are. Or at least me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, dude. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks Thanks. for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. See ya. Bye.
Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!